0: think you'll be helped if you follow along through the Bible and see the words as they're being read and being taught. We're going to focus in on verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 7, found on page 812 in the Black Bibles around you. Before I read them, I'd like to remind some of you that were here last week that we're starting the final section of what's the Sermon on the Mount, which has three parts to its conclusion. And as I share that, I want to also just briefly uh, remind you all or share that Matthew, who has compiled the teachings of Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount and the whole gospel, I think sometimes we don't give these authors the credit for the literary design and the beautiful way that The book is constructed, so for the sake of context and framework, if you've not known, Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. It is organized into five main teaching sections. There's an introductory section in chapters 1 through 3, and then starting in chapter 4, you begin big teaching block or section number 1, and that goes all the way to chapter 26 five different teachings. The Sermon on the Mount is at the very end of the first block of teaching, and each big block of teaching and instruction has an ending section with a longer series of of specific Jesus teachings. So, you've got a bigger block. If you look in chapter 4 in your Bibles, you'll see that it's not primarily Jesus teaching, it's narration. And then that block ends with five six and seven with jesus teaching that's the framework for the whole book of matthew and what scholars and bible experts have said is that it seems like because jesus is writing to a jewish audience and the way matthew has organized the teaching of jesus is that he's trying to present jesus as a new moses presenting the new torah and if you remember last week or you've been around church you know that torah is most often referred to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So when you read Matthew, you see five, and that shouldn't be like, oh, that's just coincidence that there's five main sections. Look in chapter 7, at the very end of chapter 7, and you will see, and when Jesus finished these sayings, that (laughs) phrase is the literary marker that you can see at the end of each of the five big sections. So this is not just something you make up. It's as if Matthew has put that little saying at the end of each major block of teaching to help you see that section is now over. Now we're moving into section two, and you start chapter eight. And then if you look at chapter eight, you're going to notice that it's a bunch of healing stories But then eventually, you're going to get to a section of teachings on parables, and that starts over in chapter 12 and 13. And then you've got these long sections of parable teachings where it's like, here's stories about Jesus, then here's teachings of Jesus. So that's the framework and structure of Matthew. It's a new Moses giving a new Torah, And that when you study in depth the actual teachings of Jesus, so the Sermon on the Mount and the parable section and the next section where Jesus is actually giving his words, many people have said that it's also like Jesus is copying or editing the um, sermon in Deuteronomy. So if you've ever seen the movie Inception or think of like, this is like a dream within a dream. Like there's layers of depth to the way this book is organized. It's not only ordering the Torah, the five books of the Old Testament, but that the five teachings of Jesus kind of overview the sermon in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses gives because Jesus, again, is the new Moses leading a new exodus to a new Israel with the new kingdom of God. That's really just like an introductory overview of not just the section that we're in, But it also starts to help you see that when you read the Bible, you should read it with Jewish lenses, the way they would read it, and know that these kind of things are very common, and it's not just strange coincidences that we just are bored and Bible nerds like myself who want to just, you know, study and read and geek ourselves out. That there's actually a a sense and a structure to this. And the same thing is true with the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we enter into this final section, I want to just point out, as I've mentioned, there's an introduction in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's the Beatitudes and then the Salt and Light section, which takes you all the way to verse 17 of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Then the thesis statement is about your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm not going to abolish the law, I'm going to fulfill it. And then he's going to explain for 14 teachings how that looks like. How does righteousness surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees and not abolishing the law? And last week, we looked at the last and final summary of that, which we call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. This fulfills the law and the prophets. That then end caps the 14 teachings of surpassing the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, when you hear the number 14, if you're a Jewish person, should your ears perk up? Yes. Why? Because 14 is double of seven. And I know it's school time, right? So we'll get our math going here. 14 is double of seven. Why does that matter? Because if you're a Jewish person, you know that creation was made in seven days. And seven is the number of completion, of fullness. Sometimes the word is used perfection. And then another common number for completeness is the number three. So start to think about this for a moment. In the 14 teachings, some have observed that there is a three part structure to each of the 14 teachings, and then a conclusion with a three part conclusion that we're going to look at part one of that three part conclusion. In other words, there's all kinds of 14s and 3s going on all through. The Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm going to summarize all that I've just said with this quote from uh, one Bible teacher. When Matthew is writing to his Jewish culture, seven is a number of completion and goodness, like the seven days which God created the earth. Fourteen, then, is a double of seven, so that must mean double completeness, double goodness. There is also a number, another number of completeness, and that's three. Inside the 14 is three different triads. So, it's 14, which is triple and then double complete. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is good, really good, or really complete. Now, why share all of that with you guys? Well, the first reason is because we're starting the last and final section, and it's got three parts, and you need to kind of Sometimes when you're studying the Bible, you should know where you're at in the structure. Second reason I want to share all of that is because one of the big ideas with today's message is that a lot of times when you read the Bible, and especially familiar parts, you're going to notice that at times you don't read it like a Jewish person does. You don't hear it like a Jewish person does. And so sometimes your applications and your understanding are half-truths at best and completely way off at worst. So I want you to start thinking like, oh, wow. Matthew has five fives, two different fives. You know, it's, it's got the five parts and then the five teachings of Jesus. It's got more going on than just what's on the surface. I want you to see that in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a detailed structure these men are not just throwing pieces of Jesus' life and story together randomly and haphazardly. They're, they're led by the power of God's Spirit. They're inspired to write literary works of art that have withstood the test of time, and that they are amazing, and we can spend the rest of our lives continuing to plummet the depths, and we will never get to the bottom. And the last reason I wanted to share this is because as we move to the conclusion section, it is mostly an application of all that has just been said in the 14 teachings that have these triads. And if the 14 teachings are in a form of a triad, that means that they're really good, which means you should really apply them to your lives the way Jesus is instructing. So let's read them. Let's read these two verses in verses 13 and 14. And then let's very soberingly and seriously apply it to our lives, knowing that this is really, really good. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter, it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I'm going to ask two questions because there's two things being contrasted throughout these verses. You should see them, quite obvious. There's a broad way and a narrow gate, broad gate, narrow gate, broad way, narrow way, easy way, hard way, destruction, life, few, many. There's these pairs. So question one, by looking at the gate, does Jesus want us to be narrow-minded? Question two, by looking at the way that's being described, isn't Christianity supposed to be easy and following Jesus, lifting off our burdens, not bearing more burdens on our back? Those are my two questions. As we look at the gate and the way, let's start with the first question when we look at the two different gates and we contrast them. Does Jesus want Christians and followers, disciples, to be narrow-minded? There's a contrast between narrow and wide, and a lot of times if you're not thinking Jewish, you're not thinking the context of Matthew's gospel and the story of what's going on in Jesus' life, my assumption for many of you is that the way you've heard this taught, because this is often the way I've heard it taught, is that there's the narrow way, which is the Jesus way, the religious way, if you wanted to put it more broadly. And then the wide way is, oh, that's the loose morals, live it up, live however you want, reject Christianity, reject religion. That's the broad way. That's the way everyone else is going. It's the people that are, are in jail right now. It's the bad people and the non-Christians. You know, think. You're choosing the narrow way because you're in church right now. You're following the way of Jesus and joining this church. And basically everybody that's not in church this morning, they're choosing the wide path. And it's easy and it's nice. And they got to sleep in this morning and don't have to get their kids ready to church. And they're headed to hell. Destruction. And oftentimes that's the way this is preached and taught and understood. We think of the hard way and the the narrow path being, well, that's the disciplined life. That's the hard-working people, those that help the poor and pray to God and have a, a fervent religious experience. The easy way is the lazy, bad people that sin and rebel and are controlled by Satan, not the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Is, is that maybe even still what you're thinking? I want to suggest that that's a half-truth at best. It's, it's not even really scratching the surface of what Jesus is trying to get at here. Jonathan Pennington has written an excellent commentary called uh, On the Sermon on the Mount about Jesus' vision for human flourishing is the title of it. And he says at this point of his commentary, even though the theme of the kingdom of God is apparent and consistent throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this closing section about the narrow and broad gate may seem to many to be an abrupt shift toward merely external behaviors. Unlike the emphasis all through the Sermon on the Mount on internal wholeness, that the wide and easy and broad road sound like the life of loose morals, while the narrow and hard road conjure up images of piety and self-sacrifice and duty. Historically, this text has been read and taught To represent the images that show the broad way as the impious, irreligious behaviors, but the narrow road as the acts of service and religious duties. Has Jesus here, at the conclusion of his sermon, suddenly shifted gears from a wholeness virtue ethic to a fiery condemnation hellstone, hell, fire, and brimstone preacher of behaviorism? What do you think? Does it make sense that when I'm preaching a sermon, I get to the conclusion, and let's say for whatever topic I'm preaching on prayer, and I say, let's learn how to pray, and I wax eloquently, I give you explanations and illustrations, and it's moving and touching, and I move to conclusion, and I'm like, now let's all learn how to fix our cars. Like, is that how anybody who's a good teacher teaches? Like, "Whoa whoa whoa, you're changing subjects completely." And that's what many people do when they get to these verses in the conclusion, as they start treating them as if it had nothing to do with what was said prior to the Sermon on the Mount. So quite the opposite, I want to suggest that the whole sermon has presenting two ways, two paths, two doors, two gates. And the, the contrast is not between the good religious people who choose the narrow way and the wide, irreligious, non church going bad guys, the self disciplined versus the lazy. That's not what we've been reading in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. So when you think through the Sermon on the Mount, go back to that set of 14 teachings that start in chapter 5 and look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. As Jesus starts his 14 teachings with this first one, as our little test case here of my point, is he talking to people who do or do not know the Bible of Jesus' day? What's the first phrase? You have heard that it was said, oh, that means they're going to church. They're religious people. They're familiar with the teachings of the Torah already. Is he assuming that they're going to go and make sacrifices to the altar? Yes, he is. So is the contrast between the irreligious bad people and the religious people? No, it's not. It's between the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness and view of being Israel And the whole new way that Jesus is going to represent the way to be the people of God and the kingdom of God. That's the way to read through the whole Sermon on the Mount. When you get to the conclusion, you should see that that's then the two paths that he is presenting a narrow way, which is the way of Jesus, and his way to be Israel, and the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, my beginning question was what for this point? Is Jesus narrow minded? And there's a sense to which we would say, well, Jesus is the only way, and all the other religions are false religions. And hopefully many of you in this room would be like, that's true, a hearty amen. But that's not even close to scratching the real point of his narrowness. His narrowness is not just, well, the Jewish view is better than the Greek view of all their many gods, that there's one true God, and in order to really worship God, you need a view of one God. And in our pluralistic society, just like in Jesus' pluralistic society, that's a narrow view, isn't it? Jesus is living around a Greek and Roman culture, and those people worship many, many gods, and the Jews are saying, no, there's one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that's not the contrast Jesus is making between the wide way of pluralism and pantheons of gods and the one true God. He's talking about the wide way of the scribes and Pharisees and the narrow way of following his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So there's two contrasts throughout the rest of the conclusion, and they continue to expound not religion and irreligion, but two sets of ways to be Jewish, two sets of ways to be a part of the kingdom of God. Turn back to chapter 7. Here's another way to look at this same point. When you go from part one of the conclusion, which is the narrow gate versus the wide gate, then you move to the next section. What's the next section of the conclusion? There's a contrast between true and false prophets that ultimately lead to true and bad or good and bad fruit that are compared to trees. That's next week's teaching, Lord willing. True prophets versus false prophets, you'll know them by their fruits. Good tree, bad tree. Is the contrast in this section between religious people and irreligious people, or is the contrast in part two of the conclusion between people who are talking and being religious and doing it poorly and people who are doing it rightly? Move to the third part of the conclusion, and notice that here Jesus is going to talk about people who are building a house, those who build their house on the rock and those who build their house on sand. This whole point, as we get to it in two weeks from today, Lord willing, will show that he's not contrasting people who are not building a house altogether. It's that on the outside surface, similar to the prophet's, You have a prophet who is saying externally all kinds of things, and he looks really nice, but inwardly he's like a wolf. He's a sheep in wolf's clothing. On the outside, it looks one way, but on the inside, it's another way. When you get to the house part, what's happening in the house part of the conclusion, part three? The houses on the outside, what do they look like? The exact same. But what's the difference? Underneath, the foundations are so different And you can't have external righteousness that on the outside looks okay because eventually your house will come crumbling down if it's not on the right foundation. You can't just have somebody who looks really nice and presents teaching in a very charismatic, loving way. Oh, but they're just so sweet and so convincing. But really they're just ripping people off or leading some dangerous cult or whatever else. So the internal righteousness is the contrast between the two ways. So is Jesus asking us to be narrow-minded? And I think the answer is yes. But even more so than what you probably thought prior to this teaching, if you've never heard it put this way. It's, I think, the Jewish way to read it. Jesus is being narrow even within his own Judaism. To clarify, one of the things I want to do throughout the Gospel of Matthew and to just hopefully beat in your heads again and again is that when we get to the teachings of Jesus and the stories of Jesus, a lot of times we're looking at Jesus versus the rest of the world, but most of Matthew and a lot of the Gospels are about Jesus within his world of Judaism. And you need to see him critiquing not the rest of the world per se, although there's lots of applications for the rest of the world. But that his main critique is against his own people. It's against scribes and Pharisees, it's against the ideas against, that are, are being about, promoted about the kingdom of God. And he's telling them the right way to be the kingdom of God. So, Jesus is the only way to be Israel, he is the narrow gate. His version of the kingdom of God is the only accurate version, not just of monotheism Judaism but even within that subset of monotheistic Judaism. So it's doubly narrow in that sense. Not only is he rejecting plethora of gods, he's rejecting the views of his own ethnic people. So I think applications for us should be clear. Should we be narrow-minded and tell people that there is only one way to live on this earth that leads to true life, Absolutely, because that's the matter-of-fact truth and reality of things. We should theologically be narrow-minded. I don't want to have the main takeaway for all of you be like, well, we should just embrace narrow-mindedness in every single thought and way that we approach our life. But hopefully, in the matters of where true life can be found and lived, matters of salvation, matters of who God is, there is one way. There is one narrow door. It is not wide. It is not easy. It is hard. And I think for sometimes, many of us, when we think about these conversations, we don't want to be thought of as narrow-minded, and we don't like to be called narrow-minded. But I would like you, if you're a Christian here today, and you have a conversation about a topic of narrow-mindedness, to use the teachings of Jesus in the gospel to actually help them see whoever those people are, and maybe if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you think we're narrow-minded, for you to see that actually we're all narrow-minded because you either think that your way is right or our way is right. It's one or the other. So either we should embrace a more inclusive view that all religions are equally fine, or we should have the view that there's one way that's right. And if you want to make somebody believe that we should be more inclusive of all the other religions, well, then you're demanding your narrow position view that inclusiveness is the better way to live on this earth. Do you see what I'm saying here? Essentially, everybody's narrow-minded. Everybody has a way that they're living this life. Jesus isn't asking, do you have a way? He's assuming you have a way. It's, do you have the right way? And so, as we take this application of narrow-mindedness, even within Jesus's Jewish context to the broader world, you should understand that Part of the reason why the way is hard as we look at that next question is because of our narrow-mindedness, but we're all narrow-minded, and really our narrow-mindedness is much better than everybody else's narrow-mindedness. And the reason is because Jesus' narrow way is actually more inclusive than people's inclusive being a good person, do good works, just tolerate everybody and be nice. By demanding that people consider Jesus as the only way, we're telling them that the measuring stick for salvation is not their good works and their performance, but rather the good works of Jesus. And therefore, we're suggesting that there's a completely, totally different way for us to measure what's in and what's out. Imagine, for example, as kids are going back to school and we think about grades and report cards, the way that grading system works... Right now, I'm in school, and it's, it's a crazy to me to think that if I get an 86 in my class, an 86%, I have to, I fail. I, we have to retake the class. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. And so, I think about that and think, what if somebody just blows off the class, and they do a terrible job, and they get like a 50%, and I got an 86.9? Guess what? 87's the line. And I'm in the same group as everybody else, even the dude that did nothing in the class and didn't even show up and got a 20%. The 20% person and the 86.9% person is in the same boat, and that doesn't sound fair because it's not. All of the people fail. And the typical inclusive way people think about religion is just choose whatever religion you want and everybody be a good person. And whichever way you want to kind of make work, that works. But eventually, all of those different views have a, have a line that you've got to draw, you know? It's, it's either 87 or 86 or maybe 85. At some point, you've got to draw a line and say, here's failing and here's passing. That's not Christianity. Christianity doesn't have a line like that. The line is Jesus. He is the gate. Enter through the narrow gate, and it's not… How well did you perform? It's some of the people that enter in through that gate are the 20% people, and some of them are the 99% people that get all the good grades, and they're always brown-nosing the teacher or whatever else, right? Like, everybody's in the same boat in this way of Jesus. So in fact, that way, that narrow way, when you think about it further, it's actually more inclusive of more people. It's more inclusive of all kinds of people no matter what your ethnicity is or your background or how well you have done. Probably the most common way I've done this in individual conversations, and I recommend this if you have very little ways that you've thought, how do I present the gospel to somebody in just an everyday casual conversation, grabbing coffee, meeting somebody at McDonald's and having breakfast with them? I will often say that a lot of times what people think is that God is at the top of a mountain and that every religion is a different path or way up the mountain. So, Christianity has a way up, Hinduism has a way up, Islam has a way up, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, that's what people think. And it's like, why are you being so dogmatic about Jesus being the only way? That's a way up the mountain. We're all talking about the same God. And I, I beg to differ. I don't think we're all talking about the same God, first and foremost. Because the God of the Bible and the message of the Bible is not all of you are on a level playing field on the bottom of a mountain and your life is just one long journey up to reach God. That's not the Christian message. The Christian message is that all of us at the bottom of the mountain, even if we could climb the mountain, we can't because our legs are broken our hearts aren't beating right, and we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So imagine somebody who's collapsed over in the grave at the bottom of the mountain and say, hey, climb up the the Hindu way up the mountain, or the Christian way. That does does you no good. If you're dead, if you can't walk, how are you going to climb? And that's the state that we all find ourselves in when we are on this earth. And that's why the narrow way of only Jesus is actually the best news and the best way possible, because the God that's at the top of the mountain of the Christian Bible, He comes down the mountain. Instead of demanding you to morally exercise your good works and your prayers and all of these different good things, all of which, by the way, are in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not saying that, hey, there's the the narrow way, which is the prayer way, and then the broad way, which is the non-prayers. No, he's critiquing people in chapter 6 who are praying, who are fasting, who are giving good gifts to the poor. They're religious people. That's a way up the mountain. The Pharisaical way is not a way, it leads to destruction. The way of Jesus is embracing God's grace that He comes down, He resurrects your physical bodies and your spiritual hearts, and He takes you to God, He brings you to God. Think of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, He who was righteous became unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. He suffered in our place and died so that the righteous would, the unrighteous would become righteous and that he would bring us to God. I love that image. Sometimes I tell people when I'm using this illustration is imagine you at the bottom of the mountain. You're dead. He gives you new life. And then he says, by the way, I want you to jump on my back. I am going to climb the mountain, and I want you to just hold on to me. That's what you're going to do with your new life, is just hold on and use all the life that you now have to cling to me. That's what I think it means for us to embrace Jesus as the narrow gate. It's narrow, but there's there's a wideness to this narrowness, and there's a narrowness to the rest of the world's wideness if you think about it in that way. So parents. I was especially thinking of the many college students that come back to Judson at our school, at our church, that go back to school. And Judson, if you don't know, is a Christian liberal arts college. And I went to a Christian liberal arts college, the great Olivet Nazarene University. Go Tigers, right? There's a few of you scattered around here. And when you go to a Christian school, one of the things you'll meet is a lot of students that are there because their parents want to make sure that their kids go to a Christian school and not one of those secular schools. I think this sometimes illustrates really well the way we get this Broadway, narrowway mixed up, is that we think, well, the Broadway is the University of Illinois, and all the partying and the wild living that happens on the campus of those schools but the narrow way is Olivet, Nazarene University, Judson College, right? Like that's what a lot of times parents think. Well, if I just put my kid in the right school and there's rules in the school to keep them as moral good kids, then I'll feel better. Now, I do not want to completely undermine the thoughts and feelings of parents who are raising children, many of you in this room as you're raising your children, I want you to aspire for your kids to be good kids, but is that all you're aspiring to? Would you be happy that if at the end of your parenting time, as they graduate and leave the home, that the children are good kids? They pray, they go to church, they give to the poor. They do all the things that are talked about. They know their Bibles in the Sermon on the Mount. They could be Pharisees, though. Their hearts could be very far from God. Internally, there's not much love and passion for following the way of Jesus as the exclusive only narrow way that you're so wholeheartedly saying, yes, the way of Jesus is my life. All I have is Christ. This is it. Friends, I know that many of you in this room have been around Christianity long enough have grown up in churches to know that there is a problem in America. Because of the freedom of worship, because of the freedom for people to come in and out of churches, one of the problems in our churches is that people can come and act like Christians, be good people, but never really know the way, the narrow way of Jesus. And and it's just like Jesus, isn't it? To really press in his teaching as he concludes and say, this is good for us. It's good for us to see that it's, it's, it's surface-level righteousness that says, well, I didn't murder anybody. I'm a good kid. Yeah, but how's your heart in terms of anger? Do you quick to reconcile with people? Well, I'm a good kid. I'm, I'm not partying and sleeping around in the college campus. Yeah, but internally, are there secret addictions that are going on to pornography or lustful gazes at other people where you objectify and on and on we could go, right? This is the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, is to take the righteousness of Jesus to the heart level. And so I'll sum up this point with what Donald Gray Barnhouse once said. He was a pastor in Philadelphia area of a Presbyterian church, and he asked the question to his church, what would things look like if Satan really took control of the city of Philadelphia? And he said that if Satan took over our city, all the bars would be closed down. Pornography would be banished. The streets would look pristine. They'd be filled with tidy pedestrians smiling at each other politely. They wouldn't swear to one another. They would always compliment one another. The children would always say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. But all through Philadelphia, the churches, they would be full, packed, and Jesus and His gospel would never be preached. That's one version of what it could look like if Satan was controlling and dominating a country, a town, a city. Christless Christianity. Where there's no gospel, there's no message of the God who comes down the mountain. It's always just, be good. Keep using the Christian form of your climb up to moral heights. And eventually one day you'll die and you'll reach God. That, my friends, is a message Satan would love. For people to live by and die by. Embassy Church wants nothing to do with that message. We want to embrace the very narrowness of Jesus's narrow gate. Enter, strive to enter the narrow gate. Let's conclude with our second question. Is the way of Jesus supposed to be easy, isn't it? Doesn't he say later in Matthew chapter 11 that my yoke is easy and my burden is light? How do we reconcile these concepts? Here he says that the way is hard. Before you start thinking about the hardness of it, you need to first consider that it's called a way. The word way is hodos. It means path, road, like very literally, like there's a street right there, or you could call that in Greek a hodos. But then metaphorically speaking, it's about your life and your lifestyle, Earlier in the service, Matthew—I mean, Deuteronomy chapter 5 was read by Sergi, and he was reading, and it talked about, we're going to follow all your commandments, and we're going to live according to your way. That's the word, hodos, that was used in the Greek translation of that passage. And then last week, we thought we were going to preach this text. I thought I was. So I had the scripture reader read Deuteronomy chapter 30, and at the very end of Moses' sermon, there is this stark contrast between choose life, there's two ways, two hodases. He says, choose life, not death. And then if you were following along when Sergi was reading The Assurance of Pardon, he says, each of us, though, have gone our own way, our own hodas. He's not talking about we've gone down a, a street on the road. He's talking about the way of our life. We've each turned aside and gone to the right or to the left off of the path that God gave for his people. We've gone our own way, The good news that Sergi read for us is that even though many of us have gone our own way, we sinners, all of that has been laid on Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. Even though we're like sheep and we've gone astray, God has laid the iniquities and the sins that we've committed on Christ. And so the way is what he's talking about, this way of life. And that's coming to the background of some of the ways it's used in the Old Testament. And a lot of times we think of Christianity as just enter through the door, as I just said. Enter through the door, he comes down the mountain, cling on his back. But that holding on to his back is a hard struggle for the rest of your life. And it is not just a enter in, get baptized, say a prayer, walk down an aisle, go to a conference, get real excited for a weekend retreat and get real excited about Jesus, and then live your life however you want. This clinging to Jesus all the way up the mountain will take hard, hard work. The way is hard, my friends. Although there are many ways that Jesus lifts our burdens, in this particular context, Jesus is talking about the contrast between the way of the Pharisees and the way of the true way to be the kingdom of God in Israel. And as he does so, he says, you're going to be persecuted for this. The way hard used in this text is often associated with the hardness of persecution. And so as we have already read earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is talking, I think, about the easy way being the way that does not get persecution and the hard way that will lead to death on this earth, but life eternally, life that will be everlasting. Think of the other ways Jesus has talked about his being a follower of of him. Take up your cross daily. Forsake mother and father. Give up all that you have and sell and give to the poor. The way of Jesus is hard. It's hard in part because of the demand and the call that if you're going to fully embrace Jesus, you will not only be persecuted, you will be a minority, it will not be the cool and popular way, but it will also mean that you have to give up the things that you would need in order to enter through that narrow door. You know, a lot of people, they want to come and they want to have their bags full and carts behind them as they go through the gate. And if you imagine an ancient city, the way of Jesus is to just fully embrace him and hold on to him the whole time. You don't go back and get your stuff. If you want to go through the wide gate, you'd have these wide gates where you could get carts and animals through and goods and services being transported from one city to another. And so you'd have wide gates, but then you'd have these narrow gates, and they still exist today. You can go visit Israel and Palestine and different ancient cities that Jesus is talking about where he's living. And then these, they're just kind of enough for one or two people. You can't have all your luggage. You're not not coming with a whole bunch of stuff. You have to let go of things and that's hard for a lot of people. Your love for the things of this world. Your love for religion to be your savior. Parents, your love to think if I just put them in the right school or program or certain thing, that's going to be the way that's going to lead to their ultimate final flourishing. I mean, but parents, if they have worldly success but don't know the passionate love of Jesus in their own hearts being poured out in them. Is that really success? It's hard to let go of those things. It's hard to give your children over and say, God, they're yours. And I just cling on to you and be a faithful parent who loves my kids the best way I can. Sometimes when we read this text, we think of the contrast between many and few, meaning Christianity is going to always be a small religion. The way of Jesus is not going to lead to many people getting converted. And that's not been the case since he taught this teaching. The contrast is between the popular way of even religious people in the more narrow context of this passage and the true way of Jesus. Another way to say it very explicitly, I think Jesus is saying, many. Jewish people will hear his teaching in his day when he's saying it, and they will not accept him. Many did not accept Jesus when he gave this teaching, and many others like it. Few will find it. When you open up Acts chapter 1, and Jesus has ascended to heaven, and he's left, how many people are in a room, committed followers of Jesus, praying? Roughly the number of people in this room on a given Sunday. 100, maybe 120 sometimes on a full Sunday? You think about that? Sometimes people say, embassy, well, we're a small church. I don't know. According to Jesus, Acts chapter 1, the whole world changed because of 100 some people. And the gospel kept spreading. The many here he's talking about, I think is mostly his Jewish context. And few people found the way of Jesus as true life, and they rejected him. And as we see throughout the teachings of Jesus, why would we, if we're going to follow Jesus, be surprised that if the way was hard for him, and many rejected him, will it be easy for us? Many will be saved, friends. Many will be saved. This word many is the same word used when Jesus talks about many will come from the east and the west and they will come into the kingdom of God. Or have you ever heard the phrase that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for? Same word, by the way, many. He gave his life as a ransom for just a few. No, 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 that's not the teaching. That's not the point here. said so in the grand scheme of what Jesus is presenting at his time in his culture, it's not going to be very popular, and people are going to persecute you, and it's going to be hard, and there'll be few at the end, when it's all said and done, but it will lead to many that come to faith in Jesus from all over the world, from every tribe, tongue, and language. We don't need to embrace some sort of tribal, exclusive, doctrinal position where it's like, well, not all of you are Calvinists, so therefore you're not truly saved. Not all of you are this. Not all of you homeschool, so you must not truly be a follower of Jesus. Christians do this kind of thing all the time. And limit who Christians are based on some certain parameters and make it say, well, it says few. Jesus said few will be saved. That's not what he's talking about. Read the Bible as a Jew in the Jewish context and you'll see that few will get the teachings of Jesus, but many will be saved from the East and the West and from all nations because the one who spoke these words took the narrow and hard path himself, was rejected and persecuted by the majority. He went outside the gate of the camp, walked up a hard path, carrying a cross on his back, and died for sinners. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you. Yeah, Jesus, the most blessed one, was reviled and persecuted, and his death led to our life. If you'd like to see life flow out of the death of your marriage, flow out of the death of your own personal sins that you're struggling with, you'd like to see life start flowing in this community, you need to realize that the way of Jesus, the pattern of the Bible is death comes first. The hard things happen first and then on the other side is resurrection and exaltation or in Jesus' story, ascension. Are you willing to embrace dying to self because you know that on the other side of that death is a resurrected fruit and life. That's the logic of this passage. Enter the narrow gate. Follow the hard way. Why? Why would anybody do that? Because one leads to life. One leads to resurrection and exaltation. The other to destruction. Jesus wants you to think through all he said on the Sermon on the Mount and say, which are you going to choose?